Good morning. I actually had during the worship when we, or in the beginning when we read the scripture out, so when Alan was speaking about the Goliath, and I just saw there was five or six little boys down here, including my Henrik, and your two, and Oscar, and I think Zach was there, and I just had a picture of the boys standing up and throwing the rock. So I think it was giving out the rocks. It was definitely in God's plan this morning. So Hebrews 5. And I'm going to start with a story. Last night it was a bedtime story. Today it will be a wake-up story. <laughs> so the house on the rock. Here is a man. He's looking for a place to build a house. He climbs the top of a big gray rock. Ah, here is a good place. The man begins to build his house. It is hard work. He puffs and pants. He puffs and pants and grunts and groans all day until the work is done. Just in time, he says, it looks like rain. The rain pours down, the lightning flashes, the thunder booms, the water washes round the house and splashes at the rock. The rock stays firm. The man was wise to choose the rock. Here is another man. He wants a house. I want it now. I want it quick. This place will do, he says. <laughs> he builds his house down on the sand. This won't take long, he says, as he whistles and whistles as he works. His house is done. He goes inside and shuts the door. A raindrop trips onto his nose. <laughs> oh dear. The rain pours down, the lightning flashes, the thunder booms, the water rushes through the house and splashes at his knees. The sand is washed away, his house falls flat. The silly man was wrong to build on sand. Jesus says, I'm like the wise man's rock. If you trust me, I will never let you down. Amen. That's it? So that's basically what I want to say, but now you hear the long version. Yeah. Hebrews 5. I'm taking liberties and I will just focus on the last couple of verses of the passage rather than the beginning because the beginning is about Jesus being the high priest and that was touched upon in the previous chapter and chapter 7 is all about Jesus as a high priest and Melchizedek. So I want to focus on the last couple of verses, which are the exciting ones, I think. And I'm an academic, so I like to talk a lot about very little. So here we go. Yeah. 
It's good to be honest, isn't it? <laughs> so I'll read the very last bits of the passage from message. So from verse 11, I have a lot more to say about this, but it is hard to get across to you since you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. By this time, you ought to be teachers yourselves, yet here I find you need someone to sit down with you and go over the basics on God again, starting from square one, baby's milk, when you should have been on solid food long ago. Milk is for beginners, inexperienced in God ways. Solid food is for the mature, who have some practice in telling right from wrong. So that's what we are talking about today. How do we get from milk to solid food? And as most of you know, I have a little baby who is five months old and she's feeding on milk at the moment. We are on the early stages of weaning, so she's had a taste of watermelon and she loves it. But on the whole, milk is what she needs. Milk is what her body needs because her organs can't cope with other things yet. If she were to have steak, it would not be good for her intestines. It would destroy them. So it's good to start on milk. And as a baby Christians, it's good to start on food that has already been chewed for you, that somebody else has time to spend the time digging into the scripture and preparing it for you. Because as a baby, you don't necessarily have the ability or the strength to do that. And babies, they're fully dependent on milk. They can't do anything else apart from cry, sleep, poop, and eat. That's their life. But they wouldn't be able to do those other things if they didn't have the milk. And they're fully dependent on the one who is providing the milk. And in, in, in church, that's why it's very important that we nurture our young Christians. Because if they don't have somebody who is dependable, who they can trust, then they won't survive because you need, a baby needs a feeder. It's no good giving the, putting the bottle, put, giving the Bible and say, here you go, feed yourself. You need to be able to have somebody alongside you, encourage you and say, this is what you need to do. John is a good place to start rather than Leviticus. And little <laughs> things like that. Because you do hear stories, somebody becomes a Christian, they get given a Bible and where do they start? From the beginning. The first few chapters are interesting, but then it gets rather dull. And it doesn't really tell much about Jesus' love and things that they really, really need. Things that are milk when you are a baby Christian. And the thing about babies is everything goes in the mouth. So if you're a young Christian, you just take everything in. You don't know what's good for you and what's not. It just all goes in. And if it's not milk, it will harm you. And this little one, everything goes in at the moment. She doesn't know what's good for her and what's not. That's why she has us protecting her and guarding her and just giving what's good for her. And I think that's why, as a church, having a way of discipling young Christians is important. Because when you, when you become a Christian, or take my family as an example. As you know, I have a lot of sisters. So when a new member meets all of my sisters, they don't know who's who. It's just this mass of girls, nine of us. So 
if this new person is asked to say, has a medical emergency, she wouldn't know which one to turn to, or he. Whereas one of my sisters is a nurse, so once you get to know my sisters, you would know which one to go to straight away, because you know that's the nurse one. I've, I'm a doctor, but I would be useless in medical emergencies because I'm the wrong kind of a doctor. Whereas my sister, who is a nurse, she would be the right person to go to. But if you have just met us, you do, don't know which one is the one to go to. And the same when a young Christian or even a new person joins the church. You don't know us. We're just faces. And before we two do journey together, it's difficult to know who is a safe person to be around and who is not. So therefore, it's almost an encouragement for each one of us to become the safe person. So we know that if there is a baby Christian who needs milk, we are able to give them milk and not to confuse them with the lumpier, mushier stuff. Because that's the next stage it kind of gets. You start with puree and then you go to lumps and bigger lumps. And then you go have little chunks and then they're able to feed themselves. But even then, even when they get to that point, they still need guidance. I have one of my sisters, who's the glorious Californian sister now, who is thin and tanned and lovely and blonde hair and everything. But when she was about two or three, she went through a phase of loving butter, as thickly as possible on both sides of the bread. <laughs> and we got, my parents got photos to prove this. And no matter what we did, or my parents did, she would always find her way to the fridge and butter the bread as thickly as possible. A little bit of butter is not bad for you, but a lot of butter, it ain't good for you. And she needed parents to tell her, however good it tastes, it's not actually good for you. And the other thing is, well, there's lots of other things. But one of the other things is, once we grow on our Christian journey, it's very easy to get focused on this one particular thing. And Henrik, my eight-year-old, is at the point where he can look after himself. He's kind of starting to learn how to cook and do things. But at the moment, he's able to do scrambled eggs and beans, which is good in an emergency, but Having scrambled eggs and beans day in, day out is not good for you. So you need to learn to cook other foods. So we started the process of every now and then on Friday nights is cooking knife with him. Uh, we went through quite a few Fridays of having hot dogs because that's what he wanted to cook. <laughs> and then I think we got fed up with hot dogs so we said we need to move on to something else. So now we're going through a phase of chicken fajitas. <laughs> and hopefully that won't last long, but slowly and surely He's learning to cook more than just scrambled eggs and beans. And as a Christian, it's the same. We can't just keep digging into our favorite scriptures, which are lovely and are encouraging, but we need to start going through and digging into the depths of what God has for us. It's not just our favorite little bits. It's not because if you ate your favorite food over and over, you'd soon get bored with it. It wouldn't be your favorite food anymore. And we need to be able to learn and eat proper food. Because if you're a full-grown man trying to survive on milk, it's not going to work. You're going to grow weak after a very, very short period of time. And, you know, we have the saying of, 
or do we have to spoon feed it into you? And it's actually, there is a season when it's right to be spoon fed or bottle fed, but as you grow and mature in Christ, you need to get to a point where you're able to feed yourself and feed, feed others. I'll read from Ephesians 4, 11 to 15. Because that's what it's all about. Why are we here? What's the point of us getting together on Sunday morning or Saturday evening? It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. So it's not just fair one or two of us, it's all of us who are meant to grow in maturity and in knowledge of Christ. So that we can speak truth in love and will all things grow? Not just our best Sunday morning behavior, but all things. And I, somebody said an interesting comment, kind of. I, I was reading a book by Oswald Sanders, I think. I think he's an old guy. He's one of it's a funny thing. When I was growing up, my mom kept kind of, I was brought up in a Christian home, and every now and then my mom said, Oh, this is a very good book. You should really read it. And I'd kind of nod and smile, and it would sit on the side. And I think his books were one, one of the ones that said, oh, this would be really good for you to read, Lara. And now, 20-odd years later, I agree with her. <laughs> Age 16, I didn't. I probably wish that I had read them, but then I probably wasn't at the point when I was ready to take, take them in. But he said in a book that when babies are born, the heads are actually proportionately bigger to the body. And it's the same for us as we're, as we're born Christians, because Jesus is the head, and it takes time for us to grow to be in proportion to him so that the body matches the head. It got me thinking. So as, as a church, as a body of believers, we are growing up so that our maturity matches the head of who, who we have in Jesus. And in Hebrews, he was having a bone with this, picking a bone, because they should have been able to teach others, but they were still in a point when they needed feeding themselves. And that's what each one of us, we are called to teach others. We are called to be support, encourage, disciple others, rather than focus on ourselves. And anybody who's had a baby or held a baby or has anything to do with babies, you know babies, they, the focus is me, me, me because they don't know anything else around them. 
their whole being is in themselves. And for a while, or psychologists, development and psychologists take theories about it, that actually babies don't even separate themselves from the mother. They see it, there's no separation, it's almost one person. But as the baby grows on, they start to realize that there's actually more in this life than just me, and they start to become more aware of other people. But when you are a baby, it is feed me, feed me, feed me. Um, and I had my baby sister was actually born when we were going out. So David met his youngest sister-in-law when she was 14 hours old. Um, but you came to Finland when she was about six months, I think. And being in a, I'm the eldest of ten, so there were lots of kids around, and I can't remember what my parents were doing, but for some reason David ended up feeding the baby. And so he was on kind of mushy food at that point. And David was doing his best, kind of daintily putting the food in, trying not to make mess. And this baby just kept crying. And then my dad came in and he's kind of, this is what you need to do, and started shoveling the food into him. <laughs> and the problem was the food wasn't going in fast enough. So he was, <laughs> so he was definitely in the feed me, feed me, feed me mode. And even though it might have been better for her to eat slower and let the food digest, she wasn't having any of it. She needed it now. And as we grow and mature as a Christians, we get to a point where we start to focus on others more than ourselves. And in any given situation, we have a choice. What's our response? We can focus on what I think is the best for me, or I can focus on what I God thinks is the best for the other person. And they are two different things. As we mature, we should be choosing love as our response. And there's been a big one for me, I guess, especially being brought up in a big family, fairness it was a big thing for me. Everything had to be fair. Uh, you didn't want to miss out. It had to be fair. And it's been a learning journey for me. And actually, it doesn't always matter that life is not fair. It matters if the person is loved. And that I remember the early years when we were married, David just kept saying to me, Love is not and life is not fair. And I was like, oh, it has to be, it has to be. And being brought up in a Finland, it was one of the most equal societies in the world, that had been modeled to me that there is fairness, but actually it's not always fairness is good, but love is more important than fairness. And we've all been in a situation, I love being in a schoolyard because you overhear some brilliant conversations and you usually overhear the conversation when people have been squeezed and the true self spills out. But one of the phrases you hear quite often is, oh, they should have known better. They should have done this, they should have done that. And actually, it's not your responsibility what the other person should have done or shouldn't have done. Your responsibility is your response. Do you choose to respond in love? Or do you choose to respond and get dragged in to the should have, should have, should have, which never ends in a good way? And in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, we all know the scripture. What is love? Love is patient, love is kind. 
It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And God is love. So in any situation, it's quite good indication to just run through the list. You know, people say count to ten. If you're about to explode, count to ten. I would actually say, while you're counting to ten, just go through love is blah, 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 blah. And then see whether your response that was about to come out of you matches those characteristics. And in the passage, he was kind of one of the things that they were got told of was because they were still on milk. They were babies. They weren't able to distinguish good from evil. And we all know kids can't do that. They don't know what's good and what's evil. Which in one sense is good because it means they trust people more than we would. But on the other hand, it's not always a good characteristic to have. And it's the same with spiritual infants. Unless you've learned to distinguish good from evil, it's, it's not something that happens automatically when you become a Christian. You automatically have this, this is good, this is evil. You have a Holy Spirit who will, who will guide you along the journey of learning to distinguish good from evil. But it is still a learning journey. And the, the very last verse of the passage says, who have by constant use have trained themselves. So we are, by constant use, we are training ourselves to be able to know good from evil. Every step we take is towards maturity, to be more like Christ. And one of the things I've struggled along the journey is, especially when I know I'm right, is very <laughs> humble, aren't I? But having a brain that retains lots of useless information, I usually have lots of useless pieces of information floating about. So when somebody says something, in my mind, there's already two or three different journal articles or things that completely disapproves what the person said. And it has been a journey for me to just learn to sip it, because it doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong, if that's not the loving response. If I'm at work and having a serious discussion about something, then it's right for me to say so-and-so, as Al said, so-and-so and so. But day to day, nobody would talk to me if I did that every day. <laughs> and I've actually got to a point where I realized at times I'm also wrong. This is a surprise for me. So as a church and as individuals, we are called to grow in maturity. And the problem is we live in a society where everything is instant. Those of us who are old enough remember dial-up internet. You remember how frustrating that used to be? Whereas now, broadband, wonderful thing. But even then, 
more often than not, I start to get frustrated if the web page doesn't come up immediately. I'm kind of, oh, I haven't got the time, I'm waiting. And that's the science there is trying to push us. Everything has to be instant. Whereas actually, Paul calls us to run the good race. Yeah. And being a Christian is a marathon. Yeah. It's not a hundred meter dash, it's a marathon. And if you rush ahead, you won't have the strength left to finish well. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to finish well. He wants us to run a good race. And I've got a couple of, th I've, I've, I was thinking about maturity, and I've got a couple of things that I've kind of, it's one of those things that you can't really say, do A, B, C, and you'll be mature. But I've got a couple of things that I thought maturity is not. And maturity is not an aging process. So just because I'm getting older, it doesn't mean I'm getting more mature. I have to choose. And through the choices I make, I mature if I choose well, or if I choose badly, I'll stay where I am at. And it's more about the intensity of our years rather than the extent of our years. And you can have two people going through very similar experiences, but through the choices they make, one of them can mature and the other one can stay in a place of moaning and groaning and not grow. And I have to say, Rebecca, I've been so amazed how you walked your journey. And I think you're a true example of how whatever life throws at you, you choose God. Yeah. It's amazing. Evelyn and Chucky just cry here. Terrible. <laughs> but you are amazing. But it's a choice, isn't it? It doesn't happen. And it's hard. But the good thing is God is there with us every step of the way. So when we choose whatever he has, he's there behind us, pushing us. And reaching matur maturity is a hard journey. But the good news is you're not alone. You have God there with us. And we have each other if we are in a place of healthy place where we actually look for each other and look for each other's needs and what's each other need rather than focus on me, me, me. So we can't control our age, but we can control our attitude in any given situation. In work, it happens a lot where God gives these wonderful opportunities to control your attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and relationships, wonderful. I remember when we were first married, probably married a couple of years at that point. We got married when I was 20, so it's a long time ago. But we had friends who lived in Exeter. We lived in Plymouth, and it's an hour's journey. And A38 is up and down and curvy. And we were going over for Thanksgiving meal because our friend was American. And for the whole car journey, 
we argued about who would have to drive home. <laughs> Very mature, not. But I remember that I was driving, I was furious. And in, in my mind, the fairness thing comes in because we'd been over to see some other friends a couple of days before and I had driven on that occasion. So in my mind, it should only be fair that David would drive home this time. And for the whole hour, we argued about this. And we got to the house and we hadn't, we hadn't got anywhere. We were still arguing. And our friends thought it was hilarious. And in the end, we ended up staying overnight. <laughs> so the whole argument was pointless. But at that point, both of us were still fighting what's right for me, what's, what's my best in this situation. Whereas hopefully, 15 years down the line, we're kind of a little bit more mature, I hope. <laughs> we don't, thankfully, most of our friends live closer by now, so we don't have hours <laughs> to argue in the car. But maturity is, another thing, is not, is not instantaneous or final. It is a journey. So when you become a Christian, it doesn't just happen like that. You have to do it step by step. And actually, the next chapter in Hebrews, it starts, let us go on to maturity, which implies an ongoing process. And it's painful, but there is no other option of gaining maturity. It is walking the walk. Because it's very easy to talk the talk. You know all the scriptures. But actually, to let those scriptures to work in your life, that's the hard part. And words like discipline, discipline and perseverance, they aren't very popular in our society. Because it's all about, we've got opposites, one of the houses opposite, they're having one of these instant makeovers. There's vans and painters and film crews, and they're giving a makeover to this house over a weekend, we presume. And it will look lovely, for a while, but if you don't do things properly after a time, they'll just start to fall down. So sometimes you can see people who think kind of, but how can they be doing like that? But we don't know what's going on inside. So on the outside, they can look like they've got it all together. But if they haven't been like the wise men in the parable and dug their foundations deep, it doesn't matter what they look like on the outside. Because when the rain and the storm comes, it's the inside that matters. And there are no shortcuts to maturity. I'm sorry to disappoint. But the good news is, if you keep going, you'll get there. One foot in front of another, you'll get there. Maturity is not automatic. So just because you know the scriptures, doesn't mean you're mature. So unless you work the biblical principles in your daily life, it doesn't matter that you can say God is love, unless you are able to love people you meet every day. And one of the things I've... is. It is about making choices, and any, any situation you are is making choices. But another thing that can actually help you along the journey is surrounding you with people who are a few steps ahead of you. So you can look up to them and you can learn, learn from them. 
And I've really enjoyed having the coffee mornings with the ladies because even though we're all on a journey, some of us are further ahead of one area than another area. So if you have something going on, there's always somebody who, who can say, actually, in my experience, blah, blah, blah. And it's just very helpful to hear. And I think the good thing is we are all in it together. So if you have people who are heading in the same direction, they, they will help you. They will bring the best out of you. And I had, when I was preparing, the picture I had was of a rough diamond. And the person who cuts the diamond and who has the expertise, they can look at the diamond and they know which way to cut it. So they glimmers and shines in the most amazing way. But each one of us, we are the rough diamond. And through saying yes to God in every situation, he's cutting through the surface of the stone to bring out the beauty within so that he can shine on us and his glory is reflected from us. But it's cut by cut by cut. And the end result will be beautiful. But we have to be willing to say yes for the surfaces to be cut and polished. And actually, maturity is not merely just possession of spiritual gifts. Just because somebody has a spiritual gift doesn't mean they're mature. And that's the whole point of them, they're gifts. God gives them to people out of his free will. And the gifts are there to build us up. But just because somebody has a spiritual gift doesn't mean they're mature. We can grow in our ability to use our spiritual gifts. And hopefully as we grow in that, we also grow in maturity. But actually, a true sign of maturity is the evidence of fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You might be able to prophesy, but if you can't come alongside somebody and support them when they're going through a tough time, is the prophecy going to help them? In Galatians 5.22, you all know these, good old Sunday school verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So when we walk through our life and the situations we face, if we choose love as our response, then as time goes on, the fruit should be evident in our life. There should be joy, there should be peace, there should be long-suffering, there should be kindness that is flowing out of us. And it's quite often, it's our reaction rather than our action that tells more about what's inside. Because we all more or less know what's the right thing to do. But when we are squeezed, when something sudden happens that puts us on our toes, that's when we know what's inside of us because we haven't got time to control our actions according to all the things that we know is right. That's when it spills out what's inside. And I have, I remember one time with my cranny, she was a lovely lady, um, but she had a temper. 
And it took a long time for me to discover this, because usually you assume older person is mature and sensible, but it doesn't always go that way. So most of the times he was, he was very controlled, very loving, very kind, just a lovely cranny to have. But one time, I can't even remember what happened, she got squeezed, and whatever was inside just spilled out, and she was shouting on top of her voice. And I remember we were just kind of, what's going on? That's, that's our cranny, she's supposed to be old, she's supposed to be wise, she's supposed to know all these things. But there it was, just spilling out of her because the buttons had been pushed. And I think it's for each one of us, our kids are wonderful at this, because they know the buttons you have, and they also know the buttons that you didn't think you had. They know those ones too. And it's a good way to test what's inside of me when you spend a long time with kids. They do know, and they do amazingly quickly as well. David and his brother spent years trying to wind me up. And Henrik came along and did it in a couple of minutes. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. But he did it. But as we journey on, we are imitating Jesus and becoming more like him. And our promises from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, who with unfailed faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And in 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. But what we will be has not yet been known, made known. We will be transformed into his image. And I'd, I'd just like to finish with scripture from Jeremiah. Because as, as I was preparing and reading, that another image that kept coming back to me was oak trees. And how God has called us to go deep, but also grow high. And when you have... When you go deep and go high, you are not faced by what's going around you because your foundations are solid. When you dig, dig, dip deep into Jesus, you know that's what comes out of you when you're squeezed. And when you are, if you just picture an oak, oak tree in your mind's eye, it gives shelter to others as well. There's birds, there's squirrels, there's life that the tree sustains. So as you go on in your journey with God, you are becoming the oak tree who is able to give shelter and give life to others. So this is the promise. If you keep journeying on with God and choosing him, you will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its root by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green, 
It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen.